0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com.
2: Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening.
3: Hey there, welcome to The Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jake Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today, we are joined by Nilu Motamed. She is a food, travel, and lifestyle guru. You probably recognize her. She was the editor-in-chief of Epicurious. She was the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine. She's been on Top Chef as a judge. Like, There's literally no place you haven't touched. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
4: Thank you for having me, Jake.
3: So... I remember when we met. I don't know, even know if you remember. We met at Olya Hercules's Severe Supper. Um, and we sat across from each other.
4: I actually... Uh, you're very memorable. To I you.
3: mean, we'll, we'll say. But uh, the one thing that kind of captivate, captivated me was your presence. And you have created this huge name in media, especially as an editor-in-chief, which is... You don't have many people who have been editor-in-chief at multiple publications. I want to, like wind it all the way back of like, what was your first editorial job? How did you get into editorial? What made you want to write?
4: That is an insanely uh, complicated question (laughs) because I came at this gig in the most circuitous way. Um, uh, By way of background, I'm from Iran. I was born in Iran. So I am OG, an immigrant. Um, I uh, left Iran with my family during the revolution And we moved to France and from Paris where I went to school for about four years we then uh, moved to New York and so I moved to the States at the age of 13 Uh, and I think that my story is very similar to a lot of other immigrant kids Uh, my family is a family of professionals so uh, uh, lawyers and engineers and doctors and people who do things that you know, actually make people's lives dramatically better <laughs> slash keep them alive. And uh, being an editor was not something I really had in my sights. And the funny thing is my first editorial job was after a long time of thinking that I was going to go to law school and uh, working at a law firm and working for a Supreme Court judge in New York, which I loved. I loved, I was kind of like a faux clerk for a judge um, where um, I would actually get to sit all day and uh, in court and listen to these incredible cases in front of me and then actually do the research for uh, for her decisions, which...
3: Which is so editorial
1: at its core. Yes,
4: and so fundamentally what it made me realize is whatever I did, I needed to do something where I was going to learn. And so learning has been uh, fundamental to everything that my parents have always taught me, and it is something that gives me a lot of joy. And so my first editorial gig, uh, going way, 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 way back, um, crazily to before the internet... I can't even. Uh, This is it. Uh, This is the best part because this
3: is going to (laughs) play so much into our conversation about the transition of food media as a whole. Yeah.
4: So this was, I was not in food media. I was a fact checker. Um, the closest thing that I got to being in food media was the fact that I sat in, um, in a closet, basically, <laughs> where um, where people would also come in and microwave their lunches. And yeah. so my uh, my job was being a fact checker, and I had to fact check uh, articles for a magazine called Manhattan File, uh, which was based down in Soho. And so I would literally sit in a room, which was a storage space for all of the magazines, and also the kitchen, and people would come in and and uh, and and microwave their Indian lunches and their Thai lunches and whatever leftovers they had from the day before. And so that's that was the waft that I was that I was sitting in. And so, but what was amazing was that I got to work with these incredibly talented writers, people like Roger Friedman, Jesse Cornbluth, um, uh, Steve Garbarino, and and learn learn about being. A a baby tadpole magazine editor Um, and so what it did teach me was the skills that I had learned in college I was I was a philosophy and poli-sci major um,
3: naturally of
4: course totally impractical I mean but what I loved was again the learning and so what I got to do as um, as a fact checker at Manhattan File magazine uh, uh, thanks Christina Grieven for that gig um, was learn something new, become an expert in something new uh, over and over and over again. Because as a fact checker, if anyone who is listening to this doesn't know what a fact checker is, uh, we our job is to make sure that everything in, in the article is correct. And so you have to actually immerse yourself as much as the writer did uh, to make sure that you are, uh, you are on top of whatever it is that they're talking about. And so... There's a lot of things that happened between that and fast forwarding to where I ended up in food, but actually, funny enough, Zagat had a big part in my uh, my obsession with restaurants in New York. I'll tell you that story. So Back when I was working, I was an in, intern fact checker uh-huh. at Manhattan File. I was going back and forth to Westchester uh, on the on the Metro North uh, because I was living at home because I wasn't making any money. And uh, which
3: is, I mean, I think we can talk about that briefly of the the concept of people who break into food media. Um, it's or any media, not in just food, but the concept of working in media and taking an internship. This was also at a time like was it even paid? Nope. Oh no. I was going to say because oh, no. I started. I mean, I, my internship days were right before the the big Conde Nas thing where all of a sudden every intern needed to be paid. Yeah. But it, in my experience, like this was such a huge aspect of kind of a major issue in media and breaking in is that you had to be able to sustain life in a major city without any paychecks.
4: Yeah, so I went into huge debt. I went into enormous debt uh, during that first gig. Um, I remember... Funny enough, that's when I met uh, someone in PR who uh, I still love, a guy named Stephen Hall, and he uh, did food and restaurant PR, and he would invite me to events, and I remember actually standing there and being like, it's weird that I'm having this um, caviar topped potato at this event, but I can't really afford to buy myself lunch uh, when I'm at the office. And it's a little surreal, but I think that people who go into media, we definitely don't go into it for uh, for the um, paycheck. No, you go into it because you're obsessed with it, and you go into it perhaps for the, for the uh, perks. Perks, yeah, it's perk rich. It's always been perk rich, and so. Um, but it is interesting uh, in my time, though uh, coming up, and this is, uh, I can't even I can't even talk about what when, when it, was. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But the point is there were no there was really not a lot of food media like it was we it wasn't it was before this big boost in interest in food so i was very early in this kind of nascent food media and I, and so the things that you had to read Obviously, there was there was Gourmet, uh, there was the New York Times, but it was not the way it is now, where there was constant content because yeah. was, you, you know you would get it when the magazine would come or you would get it where the newspaper would come. Um, and so I would read um, on my commutes home. Uh, I would read the GAT and I would read every single page and those funny little reviews. Um, and I said to myself one day. I am going to be able to go to these restaurants, not just go as a guest of a PR person, but actually be able to afford to eat at these restaurants, which um, they were so outside of my world. Like, I mean, Gramercy Tavern, the idea that now I can call up Danny Meyer uh, or, you know, Tom Colicchio is is somebody who's a friend of mine. these this was so not my world and so yeah. it felt I felt like an outsider and I was you know in that Charlie Chaplin way of staring at the window and watching other people and I and I really could see that it was an area that I was so interested in even though it wasn't something that I had a background in but I was became very clearly and very quickly obsessed
3: amazing and now at what point like how did you get into travel and leisure
4: so there's There's a series of of events and and kind of circuitous jobs that take me first to work at AOL at a book site and then to go to a startup right when the internet uh, boom was happening. I went to another another, uh, book startup that was being run by Bertelsmann. And actually, I will say another thing that's really interesting about the idea. You mentioned Conde Nast. Um, I remember when I worked at AOL, and this was back when, I really do sound like I'm 100 years old. I'm really not. Uh, please look up a photo of me. I'm I'm, I'm very youthful. The internet is very young. <laughs> the internet's very young. But I remember we, um, when I worked at this thing called The Book Report, there were floppy disks that they would send out with AOL, right? And so... We, um, we would have to keep on changing when we would send out a letter. So the premise of this book site was that we would review books and then we would do live interviews with the authors of those books on our website. But So I would call, let's say, Stephen King's PR and say, I would like to interview Stephen King. And because there was nothing else out there that was doing this, they were like, of course, Stephen will get on the phone with you on Thursday night. And then we would do these live kind of live entries where he would be on the phone with me and then we'd be typing his answers simultaneously and it was as though he was typing that was kind of comical it was very retro now um, but at the time that's how we did it and so um, I remember being at the book report and we would have to every time we sent um, a letter to one of uh, an email at this point to one of the publicists for one of the Random House or one of the big book companies we kept on having to update the number of uh, people who were on AOL because it was moving so quickly. So we'd be like 5 million, 5.2 million, 5.3 million, 5.5 million, and on and on. And then I went to this thing called um, BOL that never launched because it merged with Barnes & Noble. And the point that I'm trying to make, because this is a long story, um, is I went to Condé Nast at the time that I was working at AOL and really was eager about being a magazine editor because uh-huh. I saw that as like kind of the I saw that as the as everything I wanted and they at the time didn't see that what I was doing at the book report had anything to do with what they did at their magazines. There was no there was no intersection. They said what you do online has nothing to do with what we do in our magazines. Of course a couple of years later that changed and I ended up at Condé Nast and then I got a uh, Uh, This guy, Jesse Kornbluth, who had been my editor at The Book Report, was very good friends with Nancy Novograd, who is the editor-in-chief, longtime editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure magazine. And he called me and said, there's a job opening at uh, Travel and Leisure, you should call Nancy. And that's how I ended up at Travel and Leisure. I got an associate editor job. There had never been a food editor at that magazine ever. Um, Travel and leisure had always covered the luxury lifestyle Mm -hmm. space. There was travel, there was food, there was art, there was culture. But food had never really been a thing that you wrote about sort of as a focal point. It certainly hadn't been...
3: This um, was before the times of people traveling specifically for meals, oh, like you well, it get was, your reservation Yeah, this and was,
4: this was, so this was 2000. Um, this was, uh, people obviously, st- there were, there was the, there were the Trois Gros, there were yeah. the Ducasses, there were the restaurants that people, obviously there were p- peregrinations for food, but it wasn't something that was a singular obsession after, especially after the Instagram era. But I was obsessed with it. You know, I still yeah. had that, that well-thumbed Zagat. I had now met... Um, a couple of food editors. I had started kind of getting tapped into New York's restaurant scene and I was really into the idea of not just being a food editor for a New York-based publication, but I loved the idea of a global purview. So the idea of um, working at a magazine where it wasn't just about what we were doing in New York or in the U.S., but actually what everyone was doing all around the world and really tapping into the zeitgeist. I was really compelled by that. So for me, Travel and Leisure was a dream, dream gig. As soon as I got there, I was like, oh, this is where I'm really going to stretch out.
3: Amazing. And so I assume, is this your first kind of real foray into writing? Uh, As in like you are pitching stories, creating content, potentially traveling. Um, What was that like? I I just know kind of this I really love this conversation mainly for the point that even before we started recording you're talking about our age difference and <laughs> even I'm not, we're not, we don't even discuss that. No, no, I'm in my forties, folks. Uh, but, I'm in uh, my forties. Uh, but I think I relate so much to your story and to the passion and to the concept of like anything that you need to get there down to the concept of the perks and the luxury Tied to like, I was working at a spin studio because I couldn't afford a gym membership. When I worked at Silver, so like that's I was He's working. very fit, but I won. But it was it <laughs> was that that concept behind of you do what you have to do. there, there um, is the
4: hustle is real, and the hustle in in the media space is real. I mean, yeah. there's no question that when I got the job. At Travel and leisure. I was still making I mean when I look oh, at yeah, yeah. at the numbers on, you know, when they send you the, the annual IRS, like these are the these, this is the amounts you've made. I can't even believe what I was getting paid. Mm-hmm. There there was definitely not uh let's put it this way, there was not pay equity for uh for women at the time in, in publishing. And uh I I I'm glad to say that that's changed. But mm. when I started in, in 2000, uh, it was considered to be a luxury to be able to work there. And so, yeah. therefore, you had to make it work. And so, I think, though, what was amazing about travel and leisure was, like I said, this opportunity that I kind of created for myself. What I was hired as was an associate editor. What I, I had, no one told me. What were me. the tasks? So, you know, I, um, you, you know, something that everyone needs to know is magazine editors are only as good as their last 50 ideas. So you are an idea churning machine. And so what your job is when you are a magazine editor or any kind of editor or, or a digital editor, especially now, is to just keep on creating. So you, you are only as good as the last time your editor-in-chief looks at you and says, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. If you pitch ideas that are terrible, then you are really not in anyone's favor. And so when you apply for a magazine job, you actually have to come to the table with a bunch of ideas. And yeah. uh, h- the hard part uh, back in the day was um, you didn't have access to all the information we have access to now. You can you can do so much great research now without leaving your house. I used to have to go to Barnes & Noble and sit there with a stack of um, international magazines and try to triangulate trends. And so that's what you're trying to come up with. You're trying to come up with not just um, a destination idea, but the idea that in in London and in Hong Kong and in Paris and New York, this one thing is bubbling up. And trend ideas are sort of the bread and butter of what we do. And and what we still are interested in. We all want to know, oh if I'm if I'm having cardamom in my in my cookie right now, this trend is actually something that's part of a bigger whole. You we all want to be part of that. And I think Jake, you do a great job at the feed feed um, teasing out some of the stuff that is in the zeitgeist that it feels like...
3: That's the word. I mean, the fact that you use that word is just such a a perfect example of why you're such a force. In media, zeitgeist is everything. The concept of understanding what needs to be given at this moment because it's different. Ten years ago, food media needed completely different content than it needs now. Um, And guess what? In five years it'll change again. Um, what I love is that concept of the, the effort that went into it. When, you, when I think of that same concept for myself, like I just think about a tasting table because that was such a huge part of uh, the content we were creating, it was so much easier because you can scroll through Apple News or Instagram and you start to see things and Trending you notice topics, and then yeah. you're, you're like, Oh, guess what? I saw this person post a picture of this and that person post a picture of that on the opposite side of the world. And then you start to do dig in a little deeper.
4: And then you're like, shakshuka is as a trend.
3: Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Let's make it green. Um, yeah. I really, 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 really love the fact that it's kind of this timeless passion for editorial and for content. There's
4: no question. And I think once I realized that the passion was for, for that, seeking knowledge and then drill down a little bit more and realized I had grown up traveling and so for me being um, I am very much other right and so this idea I'm actually probably most at home when I'm I'm connecting with people who are also um, interesting and interested and want to kind of share ideas and so what I have found I think my skill may be uh, as an editor is that I'm really curious mm. and I really just want to know about people. I mean b- before we came on on air, I I think I asked Jake in rapid clip probably 30 questions about himself and we know each other but I I feel like it's such a I want to know more. I want to know more and it's such an it, there's a there's a great um feeling of being uh permission because of what my role has been I always can ask people questions because I'm I'm a magazine editor because I'm a reporter because I'm a researcher I'm given permission to kind of pry a little bit yeah. and I can't get enough of it <laughs> I love I really love getting to know people I love getting to know other cultures yeah. there's nothing that's a bigger gift to me that when I can go into a new city. And because of what I do, I get to show up in a boutique and, and ask people a million questions. And next thing you know, I'm having a glass of wine with them. And next thing you know, they're giving me their favorite recommendations. And this is something that's priceless. That, that gift that someone gives you when they actually trust you with the special places that they love, forget about it.
3: Especially because I feel the, um, when you begin to ask questions, it's typically not until like let's say you ask me 30 questions maybe 25 is the 25th question is the one that i'm going to say something and it's just going to unlock something in your head you're going to realize something about me you're going to make some kind of connection and i feel like so often that's with food where people ask them like oh you're an italian chef they ask the basic questions yeah. of, of kind of the the, the typical um article interview style but it's not until you start to dive a little bit deeper that all of a sudden you you find out this one thing about the chef or the person that changes everything in your whole perspective of why what they're doing is so special or unique
4: I was um, I was lucky enough to be at uh, lunch a couple of days ago at Danielle uh-huh. Danielle not open for lunch they had a special lunch um and I was thrilled to. You know, be I there. worked in the
3: kitchen there. Years I did not
4: ago. know yes. that. So you yes. know, he does that incredible annual benefit for, uh, for uh, city meals. Yes, right.
3: I cooked it. Yes. So
4: there you go. So I was there, and uh, and they. This was the lunch, the pre pre lunch, and so I was sitting next to, uh, Michel Troisgros, and. Uh, I mean he's a big deal and so I was I really was so I've never really had a chance to speak with him and Mm -hmm. and it helps that I speak French and so I felt like it was a great opportunity for me to ask him about about inspiration and about his his really his where his passion comes from and trying to balance how you stay true to what is a very traditional house obviously his father and his grandfather established this this brand and, um, and where his responsibility is and how he can evolve it and now that his sons are involved. And I have to say, it was a, such a riveting conversation for me because I think he's not accustomed to being asked things that are a little bit maybe left of center.
1: Mm-hmm. And
4: I loved it because I got to ask him, you know, because I got to pry, which is what I like to do. Um, and I think he really enjoyed it because he actually got to talk about how He's obsessed with contemporary art and how uh, his his food is often inspired by by things he sees um, in artists doing. And so then we got the dish that that uh, he and his sons had prepared, and it was this incredible, almost looked like a white flat sheet on 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 the plate. And then with great glee, he and Danielle walked around the table and with these beautiful uh, French sharp knives, slit. Uh, cut into those white kind of that seemed like there was nothing almost like a barely there there and it was all this truffle came oozing out
1: and it was
4: this inspired by this um, this Latin American artist, I think Argentinian artist who uh, slashes his paintings and I thought to myself oh my god what a great what a what an honor that I got to listen to him and then actually have this dish and now everything feels like I I understand his food, and him in a way that I never could have.
3: Which is funny because that's what I feel like a great article in a food magazine does. Yes,
4: and so I think one of the things, so interestingly my all my worlds kind of collide in that I'm married to a food and travel writer, mm-hmm. uh, an amazingly talented writer named Peter John Lindbergh and I met him at Uh, Travel and Leisure, uh, and we have been, I know, back, luckily he was leaving, so actually we overlapped very briefly on staff, he was leaving, and so I took over a lot of his um, writers, and that's how I ended up uh, editing people like Anya Von Bremsen, Mm -hmm. so Anya Von Bremsen, who was the first person to uh, write about Ferran Adria in the U.S. for Travel and Leisure, and so early on I had these incredible people who were teaching me about the world of global food, but I remember, um, whether it's with Peter or with Adam Sachs, who is a dear friend and and was a a longtime writer of mine, or with Howie um, Kahn or with Anya, amazingly talented writers, I think what they are generous with is how they remove themselves from the story and really do good reporting, good solid reporting where they listen. And those are, I think, the stories that feel... Um, the most the most moving for me the, the ones that feel like I not only uh, learned something which is always great but I feel like I can see it I can taste mm-hmm. it and, and that you know that is a that's a real skill and a real talent and I'm, I'm so lucky that I have gotten to work with with writers like that um, and I mean then there's a whole other sort of batch of people who are gifted with uh, making sure that a recipe comes together which is yeah. that was a whole I mean that's another, that's another thing that to me when I started at Food & Wine I knew about writing about food but the idea of, uh, of, of people like Kate Headings and yes, like Tina Ulaki and like Justin Chapel, mm-hmm. who um, made sure that when I made the recipe at home it was going to turn out that, yeah. was a, that was magic to me
3: that's, I mean, I think that's a, a whole other art, and we talk about the kind of... We'll get in a little bit deeper about the balance of the, the editorial brigade, but um, when I was at Sever, you think about the idea of telling a beautiful story, and you're transporting someone across the world, but at the same point, then you have this team based in a major city, typically New York, now obviously Birmingham, that has to translate it for the home cook. So someone in... Middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Any town US never cooked this cuisine. Who's never cooked this, this, cuisine, never before. Cooked this yeah? cuisine before can find the ingredients yeah. or source like similar replacements and create it without ever having that point of reference. And to think that way, it has to change everything about how you approach cooking.
4: One of my favorite things that we got to do, um, at, while I was at food and wine was, um, Persian new year, uh, no Ruz, which, no is Ruz, up. which is coming up with only a couple of weeks, you know, Persian new year, uh, is marks the first day of spring and so I've always loved this tradition uh in my culture in that first of all I get to have multiple new years which I enjoy but also Persian New Year feels like just in at the moment in the winter where you're really feeling a little bit um uh, bummed out that it's still not necessarily beautiful although it's beautiful in New York today it's 70 degrees um you you get to celebrate Persian New Year which is at the spring solstice and so um, anyone who uh, has a mom out there and knows how difficult it is to get your mom to give you recipes uh, and actually be exact with their no, measurements. A handful
3: of this, a yeah, handful of that. Like, you know,
4: you, 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 just with your eyes, see what, when it feels right, when it's, when it's wet enough. What, is that, what does that mean? I
3: love that because right. that's um, obviously we talk a lot about because my husband's family is Iraqi Persian and his aunt, who I learned how to make so many dishes with, like his cousins will say, yeah, I called her for the recipe. And I asked her how much tomato paste to add. She goes, well, if you want it really red, you add a lot. If you want it not so red, you add less. Exactly. So my mom, you know,
4: is an incredible, incredible cook. I'm very, very lucky that I get to have her food. But then when she's not here, I I want to still cook it myself. And mm-hmm. so for Persian New Year, um, uh, we, I basically... Uh, Justin Chappell uh, took her into our test kitchen uh, for a few days and he she taught him how to make Persian food and because it wasn't me she actually had to be specific and then Justin tested and tested and tested and so I am so thrilled that after that process was done and we did a beautiful shoot um, that I love 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 and will always cherish but what's incredible now is there is a definitive Recipes for for Persian New Year 100%. Which
3: which dishes. So oh.
4: we did sabzi polo. Amazing. There was achari shje. Osir, yes. So we did. Um, we're saying a bunch of Farsi words. So so yes. we, we did the the herbed rice and we did uh, the the um, the the soup that has noodles in it that are for long longevity. Um, we did uh, a stuffed fish called fivij. Uh, we did a smoked fish. We did um, we did cholezard, which is um, which is um, uh, the super golden yellow uh, uh, rice pudding that is uh, one of my favorites for for dessert. Um, we did a, it was there was a lot of dishes. So we did we did um, cucu oh, which is um, which is like our version of a of a Spanish tortilla, yeah. a potato tortilla,
3: but with like twice the amount of herbs that you yeah, ever put in you know, potato. It's you know so what's good.
4: amazing. Um, I think. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, cuisines now that are having a a moment, whether it's Vietnamese food Mm -hmm. or Israeli food, uh, Palestinian food, certainly uh, Persian food uh, where, where uh, flavor isn't, coming necessarily from, from aromatics, but comes from herbs. And I think that I love it, obviously. And I think I'm drawn often, we were talking about Vietnamese food uh, a couple days ago. Um, I'm drawn to those cuisines because I feel like they are so bright and lively. And it reminds me of our, you know, we, we love to use our mint. We love to use our cilantro. We love to use tarragon. Anything that is green and, and bright is such a, a, a fundamental, um, part of our cuisine. Turmeric, you know, is such a mm-hmm. popular spice now and has been part of the Persian culinary uh, DNA f- from, from its
3: origins. Love it. So you've now kind of come into this editor-in-chief role. What is it like going from a place where you're thinking about the content to now all of a sudden having to think about a brand and a team.
4: Yeah, I think you, well, I should ask you this question (laughs) because you, you are, you are someone who has to think about an entire, uh, an entire brand and how you evolve it and continue to shift as, as you said Demands keep on changing, and people's yeah. tastes keep on changing, and the way that we communicate and TikTok and 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 Instagram and and uh, it's constant. It's it it's is. constant. It is.
3: I mean, it's very different because I have been blessed to be in both situations of kind of larger publications that are part of conglomerates and as well as these startups where you really get to kind of like, all right, great, this is changing. Well, we're going to change it. We're going to scrap everything and like start from scratch versus a place where like, no, you actually need approval for this. Actually, we have this already sold, so we still have to do this. So it, it's a very different um, way of approaching, depending on the ecosystem of where your editorial lives and how it is kind of affecting it as a business. Because we, we talk a lot about content and as editorial leads, you're looking about like, oh, well, content is king. That's the the term.
4: It is true. It is true.
3: But all of a sudden, when you have to be this liaison between both, it changes the conversation.
4: I think that what is wonderful is when you can still be entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. in the midst of it all. And so what I loved about my time at Food & Wine was that we got to be we got to have fun. We yeah. got to um, we got to really sit down and think about what we could create that was maybe not being created elsewhere. Uh, what we could do that was going to be uh, playful for us too. Because honestly, I think the reason that we all get into this this business is that we love. Being around this subject matter, yeah. and so when I was in wine, to a fault, yeah, when I was in wine, I I wanted to put more travel in. I felt like travel people do make uh, the majority of their travel decisions now especially people in our demographic, um, based on where they're going to eat. And so I, for me, it was really valuable for me to marry my passions. And so I, I thought, well, I, I love luxury. I love travel. (laughs) I love food. Therefore that's what food and wine is going to be. And, uh, and, and I think people responded to it and it, I actually really like the idea of problem solving and of, of bringing everybody to the table. Uh, in a way that's solutions-oriented. And I think that that, for anybody out there who is managing a team, um, I think your job is to make, allow people to uh, do their jobs in the most unfettered way possible. And so it's to, so I feel like my job was a little bit of block and tackle, um, and to make sure that then the people who I had, been lucky enough to get, uh, have as my colleagues were going to get to do what they were tasked with. So at the more senior you get, certainly there's more politics and there's more, um, there are more meetings and there are definitely <laughs> more things that take you away from the thing that you actually originally got into it 100%. for. So I got into it because I loved working with Adam Sachs and I loved sitting there and brainstorming ideas and, um, And, uh, and line editing, line editing is something that, that as an editor in chief, uh, I got to do a lot less of that said, I read every single word that went into every single magazine and every single book that we, we published, um, and made notes and gave feedback and, you know, and got to play with our art department and our photo department and, go to shoots and probably be super annoying because I was giving feedback. Oh my feedback. God.
3: Editor-in-chief said cover shoot. I know,
4: but, but that's, when- I remember
3: Adam would be like, I mean, there's this one fried chicken shoot and he was just like, we got to turn it this way. And it was just three pieces of fried chicken. That was the cover. But
4: you know, but you could, but you know, that's when you, when, and with, even with actually, that's a perfect example. Actually, interestingly, I think there's a parallel there. Uh, with restaurant chefs, yeah. you know, we all need editors. We 100%. all need, you know. I think often when I look at uh, now that I work with restaurants and and hotel groups and help help them to tell their stories, um, I feel like we all need editors. We all need someone to tell us the that's best. that's too much. You need to pull back. Maybe one less one less ingredient. Maybe one less thing on the plate. Maybe take. Take in the
3: it, same way the other back. way, we need yeah. more.
4: Yeah, we, and I think sometimes we all, as creative people, uh, get a little bit of tunnel vision, and we um, get trapped in our own idea of how we want to impress, right? Because we, we all go into this, I think, interestingly, whether we're chefs, we all go into the world of hospitality because we want to make people happy. Yeah. And so we, I think as magazine- you said
3: before, we're pleasers. Yeah,
4: we're pleasers. We are I mean, I can say 100% that I'm a pleaser and we we are all drawn to each other because we are uh, everyone wants to make everyone else feel great and be happy and when I'm looking at people eating pizza at Roberta's right now through the window here and people are smiling because they are having a moment where they can be away from the chaos that's going on out in the world right now and just enjoying a meal with someone they love and having something delicious and you know that that moment is something that we are so connected to in what we do for our for our businesses but also is the reason why we got into it
3: well with that we're going to take a quick break
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's super fruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com.
3: So you now have this incredible opportunity to be a judge on Top Chef, one of the most insanely well-known and respected culinary shows out there. What is it like to kind of go from magazines and media where it's your name but not necessarily your face to all of a sudden um, having to be a personality?
4: So I... Can't tell you enough about how much I, I love Top Chef, and I've been a fan of Top Chef forever. Uh, Gail Simmons happens to be one of my dearest friends. I
3: mean, you're part of this, like, I, I didn't, I was, like, wondering whether I was going to bring it up, but you're a part of, like, this, like, F- OG food media mafia, <laughs> and it's, like, it's you, it's Saxmo, it's... it's. Um, you, I
4: didn't, it's nice, I feel like we need t-shirts if we're going to be part of an you, OG you, but food But it's, mafia. like, you,
3: you just, you, in the same way that... Um, with like reality television, how you start to love to watch social media when people are together um, in the world, out and about. Um, I find that I just enjoy seeing you and this crew of other respected people in food, just like on vacation.
4: Yeah, we do like to hang out together. So I think it it, it is funny. Uh, maybe we're the Kardashians of of the uh, of the food sure. world. Yeah, uh, I feel like I don't know who's who now. I have to start oh, yeah. giving people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, are you a Kylie or a Kendall? Oh,
3: Adam is <laughs> definitely a Courtney. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I love it.
4: Um, I, we all came up together, you know, we all, um, uh, we all, uh, are so proud of how every, all of us have gotten to, to the level that we're at. And so, yes, there's a, there is definitely a, a core posse that I'm very happy to be a part of, but, um, t- I've known Tom Clicchio uh, for, uh, since he was at Gramercy Tavern, so probably like 20 years, I've known Padma. She used to be, she used to write for me. Um, and like I said, I have watched that show um, as a fan. It's, you know, it's been on for this, the 17th season that it, the um, the 17th premiere is going to be happening this March 19th. And I'm so lucky to be... Um, involved in the show and I'll be coming back as a recurring judge this this season and also as part of a fun new digital franchise that I'm doing with Tom called What Would Tom Do Uh, which you're gonna be able to see the first episode of um, at the same time as the uh, as the March 19th um, show which is great but I actually did TV the whole time I was working at Travel and Leisure. So since 2000, I've been. I did a show on. Uh, I did two shows actually on the Travel Channel. I did a lot, a lot, a lot of morning TV. So tons of Today Show appearances. Was such a thing. And it was such a thing. It was such a thing. It was thing. such a thing. Well, I mean, I think the the DNA of morning shows have changed. But back in the day, there were a lot of there were a lot of travel segments. I would do tons and tons of travel segments, and and then cooking demos. And uh, as I evolved into, I think it's
3: because of How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. Just Kate, have you seen that movie? No, it's this kind of like iconic rom com. How with have I not Kate seen Hudson the movie? I lo- And she's a magazine editor, oh. and it just—I remember it glorified this life of like this is the person that you want as your authority on X, and I, I think that was such like a. And I think the the theme has kind of pushed throughout the years in movies, especially rom-coms, which I don't necessarily like. Are we talking like. rom-coms now? <laughs> no, but I think it's, it, I mean, we can, in terms of like equity and stuff like that, it was very much driven yes. in like love stories around women and yes. media and all this stuff. It is but, true. Oh,
4: there was that Jennifer Garner one where she was, um, when she was a, uh, a, uh, Yes.
3: Oh my. Um. Thirteen going on thirty. Yes. Same thing. Yes. Same thing. Um. So that's like that's a, a common. Theme, that was but actually
4: it, very well researched, I have to say. So you know when you we now see movies about chefs. Yes. I interrupted you, but um, and you we're like, oh, that was really well, like Chef. It was very well researched. That, ma- that movie was 100% well researched in that all of the magazine the words they used were 100% correct and the process was 100% true. I mean, the concept was ridiculous and yeah, the yeah, magazines yeah. were ridiculous. But the actual. would have never
3: approved that. Yeah. No, yeah.
4: I would have never. Those covers, no. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to see. It was always fun for me as a magazine editor to see the magazine world somewhere, you know, shown besides, you know, in in the rooms where I, you know, in the conference rooms where we made our decisions.
3: And I'm sure that helped like the whole situation of people wanting to get into media and understanding. Yeah, like. no,
4: I mean I think there is no question that being an editor, being an editor in chief, um, I mean, Dev Wars Prada, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of glamour associated with what it is that we do. I don't think necessarily what happens in fashion is what happens in in the food and, uh, and lifestyle space. But uh, it is definitely a job where you are lucky enough to be around the people who are making it happen, which is super fun. So if you are obsessed like I am, I'm a chef nerd and I'm a food nerd. If you're obsessed with that, then the fact that you can hang out with Massimo Bottura is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not too shabby.
3: <laughs> I mean, I'm excited because I feel like I have now my own kind of group of people... In my level of food media, that are at the same way. Are you the comic- new mafia? I mean, I, it's it's not going to be like anything in the sense of like competing or or. I think or we could fighting. come together. Like, oh no, yeah, no, no, it'll be a generational thing. Yeah, I, yeah.
4: I think let's stop talking about the generational. <laughs> thing. I'm thinking that we could bring. Maybe we should do one of your one of your dinners and do a joining of our.
3: I would. Wouldn't love that be fun? That. Oh my god, yes, 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 yes. But the the point about that is the kind of mentality sometimes around the competition, especially between brands uh, or magazines, when at the end of the day, a lot of these people are your colleagues and food media is small, so you might have worked with them before and or you're close with them or you're friends. You hang out socially sure. and, and yes. you just want to see everyone succeed. It's not cutthroat. Uh,
4: I think the, f- the food media world has always been incredibly generous and welcoming, which I think is one of the reasons why so many people... Um, have gravitated towards it. It is definitely uh, not cutthroat. And often it is true that uh, as you've mentioned all the places that you've worked and I've mentioned all the places that I've worked, there definitely is a lot of uh, of uh, cross-pollination. Yeah. And so I think with
3: I Such mean, a how, beautiful way, because I say incestual, and you, 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 yeah, you, you said it yeah, much more poetically. Cross
4: pollination, but I think that also, how seriously can you take a gig where what you're talking about is the placement of the fried chicken or the the color of the orange wine? I mean, we we that's it. But that said, and I think this is the part that's really important in what we are facing now food and food policy is very serious. And mm-hmm. so uh, what we do um, with our sort of happiness around how bubbly the crust of of pizza is, is important. But then as we think about farmers, as we think about sustainability, as we think about um, the economics of how, what our decisions about where to eat impact yeah. um, uh, workers. And, and so, just
3: making sure the right people are telling the right stories.
4: 100%. And I think that that, I think, is the most compelling change, I would say, in in the food media space is that we are a little bit more responsible now. And I think we're thinking about things um, both in the um, uh, inspirational id way of... This chocolate cake is over the top delicious. And then, what does this mean? How does how do the decisions that I make about what I eat and where I eat and how I cook and how I compost? What are those decisions um, meaning in terms of the future of the world, which we all are very very invested in?
3: Yeah, I think it's an uh, it's an interesting change, especially when you think about the beginning of food media was so kind of rooted in luxury. Yes. And obviously it still is because luxury is luxury. I love luxury. You can't get and, away from truffles. In the in the <laughs> words of Sonia Morgan, I have a taste for luxury and luxury has a taste for me. Um, That's but a t-shirt. that is, it's a housewife's uh, tagline. But yes, I will also make a t-shirt of that gladly. The point is that today we are seeing this kind of focus on, like you said, sustainability, all these other kind of verticals surrounding food. What are your thoughts around kind of the way that food media as a whole has shifted? And we can talk about like print versus digital, but I kind of want to start with just like the subjects that we're shining lights on.
4: I think that there is just uh, much more of a democracy in terms of Interest, and I think that that's really fun. So, uh, as a, as an example of being an, an Iranian immigrant, when I was coming up, uh, there was no, there was really not a moment where I thought what I should do is do a big feature, a juicy feature story on on my Persian food culture. It felt a little bit. Um, left of center and therefore maybe not interesting. It wasn't a mass subject, right? And now what I think we celebrate is our otherness and our differences. Mm. And so I think the quirkier, the better. If you have some weird, (laughs) weird, obsessive, um, Uh, thing that you want to talk about that you are passionate about as long as you are you're not just doing it for clickbait and it is truly Mm. something that is of interest to you yes and I, I want in on that too I mean, I I, I feel like there's so many examples of things that I wasn't tuned into, and then because someone wrote uh just even an Instagram post about it, and then I'm like, oh my god, I need to I need to get that. Yeah. So it's funny, it's such a weird sentence to say, but as I was thinking about my my coronavirus pantry, as I was thinking about the things that I wanted to have at home. Um, there was part of me, the magazine editor part. I was like, "Oh, this would make a really great article." It's like, yeah. the, the, but not just the essentials yeah. you need to have, but the things that are you know, kind of like the cult things that you need to yeah. have. Um, funny so,
3: enough, I a friend of mine who's a, a blogger kind of did a blog post on it about how she's stocking up for it, and it's funny because at first I saw it, and I found it so jarring. jarring, and then I thought, I'm like, it's it's genius. It's so timely if you right. think about the the idea of. We're looking at this response of there's that oversaturation a few years ago of clickbait, of where you, it's like a headline that would just grab you, you'd click it, there'd be like a tiny two word piece of information and in all of, in 500 words of just fluff. And now we're kind of thinking more so in the sense of how are we going to like jump on something that's super timely, yep. but at the same point be more serviceable and more something that someone's not going to feel like jipped that they clicked.
4: So I think that's a really good point. And I think what my, what my barometer has always been for content is is this a gift? Am I giving a gift to the reader? And so any content that I think of when I um, was deciding when when, Mac, when our editors would come to me and say, um, should we do the story?" And I'm like, what's the value? What's the value proposition? And now even when I when I work with clients in my consulting business, even for a brand, I think it's really important to be giving value content when you put stuff on your Instagram. Don't sell to people. People need stuff that they can then act on and use. And I think once, even if someone is, uh, you know, someone who is buying your toothpaste, as long as you're giving them information that is valuable to them, they are going to, they're going to be loyal to you. I mean, toothpaste is a weird example. No, but but it isn't because then
3: it just makes me think of like, that's that new kind of push. I think of like the away bag and how they put money around an editorial magazine to go with it because it's just serviceable content with a product that you're going to use hand in hand. The
4: thing is, there's no question that we are all selling something, right? Yeah. But the question is how you do it. And so if there's a way when you, your friend who's the blogger put together this, this list, we all are looking for comfort. We're desperate for, we are all super anxious, overly anxious, um, and we just want things that are going to make us feel better. And food, obviously, is, is the ultimate, you yeah. know, pacifier, right? And so for me, I wanted to make sure that I had my cori- my favorite coriander chutney. I was like, I have all, a lot of things. There's lots of, I'm a condiment person. But, so, but I was like, I'm out of coriander chutney. And, you know, this chutney makes everything better. And so I went to Calustian's, to bought my coriander chutney, and I was Amazing. like, okay, all is well now.
3: Great. So we're in this kind of new chapter of NILU and you're consulting, you're doing kind of all of these projects that are great because when you're kind of tied to one brand, you obviously, it's amazing. You have this big picture thing, but you often get bogged down into the details or the day to day. And what has been kind of the best part of stepping into this new role?
4: That's a really good question. I think what I love the most about this new chapter in my life is the fact that I keep on getting to learn. Mm. And so, like I said to you from the beginning, what I love about being a magazine editor is the opportunity to immerse myself in different things. And so now that I get to do some TV and I'm working on on my own podcast, so you're going to have to come along... And uh, with Peter and uh, a bunch of different projects. A, I love the, the variety, but also I love the idea that what we used to only do for magazines, we can now... Help brands tell their stories, and there's something really gratifying to sitting with people who don't have the expertise that you and I have, but and, have the story. But have the story, and and to be able to tease that out, and to help them figure out how they can communicate, and actually, it's very gratifying that because things have evolved the way they have, magazine editors, me, used to be the middleman, right? Yeah. And so, without me, there was no way for a brand to tell their story, and now. Because of all the different channels that exist, anyone can be a storyteller as long as you are being generous, as long as you, everything authentic. that you're, you're putting out there is authentic. And it is a real gift to the person who's getting it.
3: I love that. So this leads into my favorite part. We're going to do a little lightning round. Yay. I few, love lightning <laughs> rounds. Just a few questions. Um, what do you want to see out of food media in the next few years? It could be an ingredient. It could be a cuisine. It can be a concept.
4: Oh, I really like this question. I want for everyone to be true to themselves. I think that that's what I'm really enjoying, is everyone being singular and not just trying to do things that feel like they are serving maybe a bigger purpose, but really that individuality. I'm really enjoying that. Also, of course, any ingredient that has any touches anything on Iran makes me happy. Love it. And so um, I think if we can... Uh, fenugreek sure let's oh, let's talk about fenugreek but
3: i'm very leaves not seeds i love the oh, leaves sure. seeds i'm okay about thank but you but the leaves
4: thank you no one else knows what we're talking about of you course, and i are 100 on it well
3: i'll tell you about my gourmet oh, recipe and
4: after. crunchy rice more crunchy rice
3: we'll talk about my tadik section of my cookbook right okay. after we finish um when was the last time you were just floored by a meal
4: oh that's also a really good question um I, when we were shooting Top Chef uh, for the finale, I think I can talk about this, we were in Italy. I think they've already said this. And afterwards, Gail and I, uh, we were both uh, hoarse. We couldn't really speak because um, all the talking on the show. It's the last last day. And then we went to Milan and we ate a meal um, that was just exceptional. And and both of us were so hoarse. I mean, I have a video of it. It's comical because neither of us could really get a word out. We're drinking this great wine. We're having this incredible, incredible seafood. And we felt just so proud of ourselves for, you know, getting, um, finishing the season, um, but also for having found a great meal. And um, we were very, very happy.
3: What is, I hate, I mean, I absolutely hate the term guilty pleasure because mm. I don't think there should be shame around food. Mm. But what is like a chain restaurant that you love. Like I always, I'm very candid with the fact mm. that I love California pizza kitchen.
2: Mm. Mm. <laughs>
3: there doesn't I, have to be one.
4: Um, Okay. I, oh, stuff. I can't, oh, I can't say that I love this restaurant, but I will say that a McDonald's egg sandwich, yes. very specifically at an airport with a packet of ketchup it, there's something about that that I will partake in, but it's it has to be in situational, in those, in the, yes. just then. Hundred percent. It's not like I feel I've like ever, there no
3: there are no rules at an airport. It's the wild west. No,
4: it's I mean, but I feel like it's it's I mean, it's not wholesome, <laughs> but I, I think the Canadian bacon is good. Mm. The egg is good. The muffin. It's a gift. I, I, yeah, it's a gift. I feel like in that situation that I'm in, which is pretty pretty bleak, you know, being in an airport. People come up with better airport restaurants. I
3: know. Honestly. Um, unless they put a Shake Shack in every single airport. Yeah, I, it, I agree. I and,
4: and that's, uh, but that could, would, would Shake Shack have counted as a no, chain? No, I don't, no. I don't count that no. because
3: I go to, I love, I mean, no, I'm that a, big, a big Shake Shack fan.
4: This is a Danny Maurer shout Danny shout Maurer. out well, funny.
3: I mean, it's funny because you were talking about you calling up Danny, and I think it's such a, we talk about this conversation because I'm good friends with Hallie. Oh. And it, it's just, it really is that kind of continuation. Yes. Um, so, we play fuck Mary Kill on this oh on this God. podcast every episode. I had no um, idea. Yes. So yours are Persian ingredients. Okay. Um, naturally. So you have saffron, barberries, and rose water.
4: Okay. And and fuck is in a good way, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, not, so okay, I always yeah.
3: explain like Fuck is, like, what ingredient you lust over. Yes. Marry is what you need forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. And kill is, like, you can go without it. Yeah,
4: okay. Thank you. Thank you for, I mean, <laughs> I feel like you just gave I me mean, a tutorial. I mean, well, the tutorial. thing, when
3: I first pitched it to to the team, they were like, no, 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 we can't be, because they thought I was talking about, like, cookbook authors or editors, yeah, where no. we're going to be, like, doing that. I was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. That's not the vibe.
4: Okay. So I would say, um, barberries, uh, fuck, bar, fuck barberries, um, marry Saffron because I can't live without Saffron. And I would kill Rosewater only because my husband doesn't really love it. Peter, is not he's not a fan. I love it.
3: Shame. I know. Shame. I know.
4: And so I feel like of the things that I could do without Rosewater, gotcha. Rosewater would have to be it. But then I think I might have to have a secret stash An that affair. I. An oh, affair. Yes. An affair <laughs> um, with Rosewater. That's funny. Because I think I'm... that's the name of my memoir. I, yeah. Oh,
3: that's actually, that's a really cute... That's well, let's a, okay. write that down. You heard it here first. Um, you know, I'm very lucky that my husband loves, we love like, like grandma level, like perfumey rose water. I, I never enough.
4: I believe I have to blame like an ex-girlfriend of his who used to wear a rosewater perfume. Uh, okay. So, I mean, I, I feel like it's kind of good though that he doesn't, he's not like, oh, I love that scent since it reminds him of the ex-girlfriend. I
3: love it. Yeah. So... We've come to the end. Thank you so much. This was such a, like, truly one of my favorite conversations. Time flies
4: when you're with you, Jake. Thank I love you for it. having me. So, where
3: can everyone kind of keep up to date with all things Nilu?
4: On IG at Nelu Motamid. And please uh, tune in for the premiere of Top Chef uh, September 19th. I won't be on that episode, but I will be on bravo.com with Tom on What Would Tom Do?
3: Amazing. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at thefeedfeed and myself at Jay Cohen. If you have a tip on who the next social media culinary star will be, send us a DM. We'll see you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast.